Uh, I love that Josh mentioned that he asked and in hard questions because that's one of my favorite things to do. Uh, some of you love it, some of you not so much. Jerry's shaking his head back there. Um, I do that because I want to get people thinking. And I can't take credit. Uh, it really was from deep study into the Gospels. And I looked at how often Jesus asked questions. And he asked many questions in many arenas, and it wasn't because he didn't know the answer. So you could just give the answer, but then is that what's most beneficial for us? Do we learn when someone just spoon-feeds us information? Or is it more beneficial when someone asks you a question and gives you breadcrumbs along the way to, to get to the truth, and, and hopefully, through those questions, you come to the right conclusions? And so I think this is what happens within the church when we want to take people from consumers. This is what our culture does, right? I sit in front of the TV, feed me. I, sit, I, I go to the movies, if we're ever going to go to the movies again, uh, and just sit there and just feed me. I go to, to school, I'm here to just take in information. Again and again, we're, we're taught to consume. But in the church, it should not be so. You, many of you heard me say this structure of one person speaking here like, I love seeing you guys, but uh, we, we should be interacting more on, on Sunday mornings. Um, but this, this is not natural that all people face this, this way. So to ask a lot of these questions, I want to get you to think. I want to engage because I want to bring you from, from consumers to participators. And those questions will start to bring you there. And then hopefully, as you begin to think through what you understand, uh, what you may not understand, and hopefully bring you to those understandings, bring you from, um, from consumers to participators to contributors. And that's what we want in the Bible. In, or in the, yeah, they want it in the Bible, but we want it in the church too. You know the old saying, if you uh, give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day. You teach a man to fish, he will eat for the rest of his life. Teaching is the same way. If you teach a man, if you give a man an answer, he'll eat for a moment. He'll think for a moment. But if you teach him how to think, He'll think for the rest of his life. And that's what we want to do. That's what Jesus sought to do is ask hard questions. Even though he knew the answer, it's not for his benefit. Because he wanted his disciples to think. And we want to be people who think. We want to be people who consider things deeply. Who don't just take them on face value. You don't just take my word for it. That they search the scriptures. That they understand them for themselves. That they stand in faith. And this morning, we're going to ask a few questions because Jesus did. And in those questions, I want you to consider the answers. And because I love you, I'm going to keep asking you questions. Some of you love it. Some of you are like, yeah, ask me more. I love the deep questions. Some of you are like, oh, man, i got to meet with Tim. He's going to ask me how I'm doing. <laughs> yes, I am. We do this because by renewing our minds, by transforming our thoughts, we begin to tune our spiritual sight to see God rightly to consider Jesus and hold Him where He should be. And I want us to be people who are wise as serpents and gentle as doves. Let's open up Mark chapter 8. So, if you were here last week, you see that we're going to overlap our passages a little bit. I'm going to treat the the uh, healing of the blind man in two stages, as Jesus does. And so, 
We had our introduction last week, uh, but I'm going to read the entire section, and our, the majority of our focus is going to be on verses 27 through 30. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village, and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he said to him, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his, laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning. Weak, wretched sinners. Hard hearts, dull minds, wicked speech and actions. Only by the work of your Spirit can our hearts breathe new life? Can we pump vital blood? Can we speak speech that is pleasing to you? Can we think thoughts that understand you and glorify you? Lord, I pray you grant us wisdom this morning. Pray that these simple questions, the simplest of all but the most profound, would search to the very depths of our souls. Do we see? Do we see Jesus rightly for who He is? Do we know Him? Do we love Him? Do we serve Him? And do people see this in us? Lord, I pray for Your church. We read Psalm 2 earlier, the nations rage and plot in vain. Now the mask is off. The raging continues every day. The church will be challenged. The church will be persecuted. And I pray that you burn off the chaff. That you separate the goats. That you strengthen the wheat. That you build up the sheep. That we would confidently and boldly proclaim your name to a wicked and perverse generation. Because we have the peace that passes understanding. Because we know Jesus. We know Him rightly. The Christ, the Son of the living God, our only hope in life and death. And it is in His name we pray. Amen. Alright, so let's recap briefly. So last week we looked at this miracle, the only miracle in all the Gospels that is done in two stages. In every other instance, Jesus heals immediately. And I don't believe that that's by accident. I think this is a key account to bring together what we saw last week and what we're going to look at this week. And it's going to provide some essential context. So last week we looked at the, the partial, if not full, blindness and hardness of heart of the disciples. 
And it's going to set up what we're going to see this week. And so something different is going to be done in the man this week than last week. And we're going to see something different in the disciples than what we saw last week. So we saw this very delicate medical process where Jesus spits in his eye and he sees, please don't try this at home. This is only for trained professionals. But still really cool that that's what Jesus chose to do. And he asked this very probing question. Do you see anything? Now the first thing we have to ask ourselves is, is Jesus asking this because he's wondering if he did it right? Did I read the spell book correctly? Did, did this actually happen? I don't think so. Jesus is not asking questions because he's ignorant of, of, of the situation. But the man needed to vocalize his progress. There is something with confession, meaning to speak in agreement. There is something with, with, with vocalizing what you understand. And Jesus often asked questions in his miracles. Either of those who had been healed or those who were, who were listening. And I also think Mark wants his readers to pay attention here. I think Mark wants his, his, his readers to have this description of partial sight. Of partial understanding. Because in the previous verses, he is chast- Jesus is chastising the disciples. Do you not yet understand? You have ears to see, or ears to hear and eyes to see. Maybe that's why they don't understand. They have ears to see. <laughs> this, 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 this blind man now sees people, but they look like trees walking. Like, I know there's something there, but I don't fully know. I think this is where the, the disciples are, and that's where we, we left off last week. But I also think this this two-part healing and the partial and full sight sets us up for the two-part question of who do people say I am and who do you say I am? The partial understanding and the full sight. And so the man's answer is very telling. I see, but. So do you really see if you have to include the but? I see, but I don't see rightly. So there's a, a, a partial sight here. And it's interesting that his partial sight, so if you guys don't, uh, are not bothered by the uh, alarm, I'll try not to be bothered either, but I can't tune it out. I'm going to try to. So, um, just like his partial sight, Jesus spit on his eyes to give him partial sight. Even the little understanding that he had was from Jesus. They heard me. But his full sight is also from Jesus. In the same way, it was a touch from Jesus that opened his eyes partially. Every bit of sight that he had, he he owed to Christ. But it was another touch from Jesus that opened his eyes fully. And it's interesting that his eyes don't see everything right away. It reminds me and should remind us of the slowness of our understanding. I love that Josh said this perfectly earlier. He always knew that he feared the Lord, but he didn't really grasp fully what that looked like. And I know many of us have, have, have had that. And so there is a slowness in understanding in the disciples. There's also a slowness in us. Right? Because spiritual clarity really rarely comes right away and almost never as quickly as, as Jesus often healed. So there's a, there's a bit of theological undertone there. And there's a kind of a great lesson early on here that we should be patient in ourselves and in others because it is God who grants us sight. 
But we should not be complacent and not pray for that and desire that. Many conversations I have with people throughout the week. Well, I'm not really growing. I want to desire that, but I don't. Are you praying for it? If you are frustrated with your maturity right now, if you are frustrated with your desire for the Lord, are you seeking it? Be patient, but don't be complacent. Go before the Lord and seek and desire. Do you want to see your spouse grow? Do you want to see your loved family members grow? Are you praying for them? Are you asking for that desire for them? Because it can only come at the hand of Jesus. You cannot will yourself to it. As much as this man wanted it, trust me, if anyone could open their own eyes, this man, he would have tried. But they can't. Spiritually, it is the same thing. It must come from Jesus. We must go to Jesus. And so in this second time, everything changes. Verse 25, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And the man opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. His sight is now restored. We're going to draw on some of this imagery later. But then Jesus continues with his concern for secrecy. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Well, why not? What's Jesus' concern here? Well, Mark doesn't give us the reason, but by the order of the account, Jesus has to have a very important conversation with his disciples. We already saw, so remember, if you've got your, your little map, you've seen Jesus traveling around. Now he is on the shore of the, of the Sea of Galilee again, primarily Jewish area. He already said he is done with the Jews at this point in his public ministry. He doesn't want all the chaos and the messianic expectations he needs to ask them difficult questions, and he needs to, to pull away. And I think this is why uh, he tells them not to enter the, the village so that the word doesn't spread, but to go to his home. Uh, because typically in the village, this is where all the people gathered and where the, uh, uh, you know, the social gossip would, would, would spread around. So uh, a little bit of application before we kind of switch into our next section. I love that this is a wonderful picture of conversion touched by jesus eyes opened even the partial sight is from christ and there is a picture of this uh, and so this morning i'm gonna go through a lot of scripture so it's gonna be like a sword drill for those of you who grew up in um more fundamentalist churches i didn't have those but i heard of them so um david laughs because he was there uh so second corinthians 3 talks about this very phenomenon within, within the, the, the Jews and what is going on with this, this partial sight. So I want to kind of uh, move through a lot of these passages quickly. So if you've got your Bibles, great, but most of them will be up on the screen. 2 Corinthians 3, look at verse 14. But their minds were hardened, for to this day and to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because they only see, because only through Christ is it taken away. In the same way, physical sight is only achieved through Christ. Spiritual sight is only achieved through Christ. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their eyes. I, I, I see people, but they look like trees walking. More importantly, their hearts, which determine their eyes. 
But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Are you ever just blown away with with, that's what we have in Christ? If you are in Christ, we all with unveiled face, we now behold the glory of the Lord and we are being transformed into that image. Our spiritual sight is is being perfected. And we in the Spirit see Jesus for who He is. But very often... Conversion seems gradual, as in Josh's cases and in many of your cases. And we spend much of our time like the man who's seeing trees. Like, I think there's something there. I've talked to many of you who, who feel frustrated that I'm not, I'm not getting it. I believe and I want to make these, these connections. Again, it's, it's a good prayer. But there is a time, and many of us have this, where, okay, we, we know the Lord, we're reading the Bible, and then the Spirit opens our eyes in a way like, I get it. The words are leaping off of the page. I'm starting to make the connections. I'm, I'm seeing how the Old and the New Testament fit together. I'm seeing how all these things are fulfilled in Christ, and it is amazing to see clearly. Amen. Even the disciples did not see clearly until the very last verses of Luke, and I want you to turn there quickly. So if you're in Mark, uh, go to the next book to the right. The very last verses. So this includes the um, kind of the great commission of Luke. Pick up in verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Spiritual sight, Jesus opens their mind. But this is only after the resurrection. And said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name uh, to all nations. Gospel preaching. The first thing, open my eyes, preach the gospel. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Repent and believe for the forgiveness of sins to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of the Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with the power from on high. Acts 1. I see that in the Holy Spirit uh, in, Acts, in Acts 2. Then he, said, uh, then he led them out from Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried away into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continual, continually in the temple blessing God. The very last words of Luke where the disciples get it, where they see clearly. So there's still even a partial understanding in the rest of Mark. But the results should always be the same. When your eyes are open, when you understand, you praise the Lord and they worship Him. Blessing God for seeing Jesus rightly who He is. But we have to be honest. Even the most mature Christian with full spiritual sight in our flesh are still even only seeing a glimmer of God's glory. 1 Corinthians 13. The great passage on love and gifts and all that stuff. But it's not enough. 1 Corinthians 13, pick up in verse 9. 
For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Even if we see Jesus as fully as we can with our human eyes, it is still only partial. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways, partial partial sight to full sight. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. As much as God knows you, you will know him. Think about it now. We praise the Lord through a dim mirror. You ever think about that? One day we will see his glory fully. Can you imagine God's full glory? Pure light, full color, Sensory overload, splendor, beauty, majesty, awesome power and glory forever and ever. We're not even there yet. We're looking through a dim mirror. The most mature of us. There is so much more to God and His glory. And we can even understand and imagine So now we transition to our second part. Now Jesus is going to travel away from Jerusalem, going off into Gentile lands again. So I want to make a quick note here. This is the theological and literary heart of the book. It is the very center of the book, almost exactly. And it divides the first half of the book from the second. So one, there's a geographical split. His time in Galilee and his ministry, uh, to, his ministry of uh, healing to the Jews is, is now in the past. And now his teaching, his intentional theological training of his disciples and his movement toward Jerusalem and, the, and his final hour are, is he, he's looking forward to. But there's also a theological change. In the first half of this gospel, I've made lots of jokes at the disciples' expense because of their partial sight, their, their, their hardened hearts. But now, starting with Peter's confession, Jesus is going to open up and give them, uh, give them insight that they had not had before. Their understanding of him is going to grow. In the second half, they're going to begin to embrace his Messiahship. And their eyes are going to be more open. And his calls to secrecy that we saw in the first half, we're not going to see anymore in the second. Because as the day approaches closer. But even still, without the resurrection, there is still an ignorance. And we're going to see part of that next week in Peter. So I want to pick up in verse 27. And Jesus went uh, on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. This is a 25-mile, two-day journey that is through winding, rocky mountain and, and ravine roads. This is slow going, and so Jesus takes his time, and he's talking to them on the way. And he asks the question, who do people say that I am? So why did Jesus ask this? Does Jesus care what people think? Is Jesus trying to live up to others' expectations? Or is there still a confusion out there as to who he was and he's trying to get the disciples to the right conclusion? So notice, this is not the most important question, but he leads with this. Remember I told you about breadcrumbs earlier? He asks a simpler question, a a less invasive question to set them up for the question that, that really matters for them. He doesn't put the pressure on them right away. He gets them thinking, 
but it's setting them up to answer for themselves. And as they travel and they get closer to the hour, he wants them to be ready. So their theological uh, training and questioning is going to increase over the next couple chapters. Who do people say that I am? So before we get to their answer, I want us to think about our answer. Who do people say that he is? Because this is always a pertinent question, and it's different in every age, but yet it really doesn't change that much. Who do people say that he is today? Great teacher, good man, prophet, lesser God, fairy tale, moral example, curse word. Generally, I've found that when I talk to people, most people like Jesus. They like the idea of Jesus. But at the same time, most people don't know Jesus for who he really is. They like the idea of Jesus until you start talking about Jesus and what he requires of them. It's sad how many times I've asked professing Christians, oh, I'm a Christian. Well, tell me about Jesus. And there's a stammering, stumbling response that quasi-resembles the Jesus of the Bible. I mean, it should be a simple answer. Who he is, what he's done, i.e. the gospel. But many people struggle to even answer that. So many of you ask me, well, I have this person, they claim to be a Christian. How do I know? Simple question. What do they say about Jesus? Because God is safe. Any Muslim uh, or Hindu or Jehovah's Witness or Mormon can say God. Jesus is the dividing line. Who do you say that I am? There's a lot of wisdom in saying, I'll just listen to you talk. Because if you talk about your Christian life as it's all of what I've done and all of the things I'm doing, or I've made these, these, these moral improvements and I think these good thoughts, then you may not know Jesus. Because if you knew Jesus, you would know how wicked you are and how good He is. And apart from Him, you don't have any good thoughts. You don't have any good actions. But this is the world we live in. And so we should have ears to hear and eyes to see. Are they proclaiming the Jesus of the Bible? Or are they seeing Him partially, if not if at all? So here's the conception in Jesus' day. And they told Him, their disciples responding here, well, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. John the Baptist we spent a lot of time on, so we're not going to spend too much time here, but uh, there was a connection made. Herod had this assumption that he thought that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Well, because they both had this, this fervor for the Lord. They both taught like no one else taught, and they, they both had this great following. And so they were, they were always coupled together. They were around the, the, the same age, uh, and they were supposed to, because he was to prepare the way for him, but he was not the one. There was someone greater. Now, Elijah's interesting because for the Jew, there was an expectation that Elijah would return because Elijah did not die. He was taken up to heaven alive. Look at Malachi 4. This is interesting. These are the very last words in our Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, the last two verses. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. John the Baptist's message, repent and believe. 
Turn from your old selves. Turn to Jesus, the one who comes after me, the one who I'm not worthy to tie his sandals. John the Baptist and Elijah are the same theologically. Jesus gets to that more uh, in uh, two weeks, but quickly, chapter 9. Look at verse 11. And they ask him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. Sorry, I'm in chapter 9. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you, Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Again, they knew that Elijah should come. They knew they should expect Elijah, but they didn't fully see it. There was a partial understanding. They were viewing the Old Covenant with a veil. Now, or, or one of the prophets. Certainly, he's got to be somebody. But now Jesus' answer. Jesus' question and Peter's answer. Forgive me. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? I can imagine you would hear a pin drop after this, this question. It is important, first of, us, first of all, for us to realize that they are not beholden to what other people think. That our belief is not dependent on someone else's confession or partial understanding. Okay, that's what they say, but what do you say? This is the defining question for spiritual sight. The purpose of the entire book. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's the point of the entire book. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, being the spokesman for the twelve. Peter, up to this point, has done some foolish things. Won't be too long next week. He's going to say some foolish things too. But this moment... As their spokesman, he makes this bold proclamation with the definite article. Peter answered them, you are the Christ. Not a Christ, you are the Christ. The one and the only. I got a call on Sunday from Hope. Too bad she's not here this morning. She was so excited. Pastor Tim, guess what? Pastor Tim, guess what? I learned about Jesus. Christ is not his last name. It's like, Hope, I know we've talked about this. But she was so excited that she learned from the Greek to the, to, to the Hebrew and that Christ was his, was his title. That is so cool. Even in the simplicity of that, that revelation. He's the anointed of God. From the Greek to the Hebrew, the Christos in Greek comes from Mashiach in Hebrew. Anointed. One who God covered. It's, but it's an all-encompassing cumulative idea there's a lot of old testament expectations rolled up into this so we're going to go through uh, a few passages we absolutely cannot go through through them all but if you look in the old testament up the one who is to come there's royal expectations there's political expectations there's spiritual expectations restorative expectations redemptive expectations but mainly there are three anointed offices the prophets who were called and specifically set apart by God to speak the words from his mouth. The priests who were consecrated, uh, set apart for his service. The kings who were anointed to lead. And so I want to look at a prophecy from each one of those. Looking forward to the one who is to come. Many of you know these, but you should know these. Jesus, coming from the offer of prophet, priest, and king. These passages you should know. 
How do we know this is one God and one redemptive story? How do we know that, that Jesus fulfilled all the scriptures? Well, these are some of the main ones. Look at Deuteronomy 18. We studied this when we went through Deuteronomy. There was a promise that a, pro- that a prophet would come like me, like Moses. These are Moses' words from the Lord. Deuteronomy 18, 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers, must be from the nation of Israel. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. The people were so shook from God's voice. Don't let him speak to me again. Send me someone to speak on, my, on, on his behalf that we may hear him. And the Lord said, they are right in what they have spoken. They should not hear the voice from heaven. But I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Hebrews 1.1, long ago and in former days he spoke through the prophets, but now he speaks through his son, the fulfillment of that office. Second office, priest, if you've been in our Hebrew studies, we have beaten Psalm 110 to death, and we're going to read it again. Because this is the promise fulfilled for the entire book of Hebrews. Our high priest. Not according to the line of Aaron. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, kingly language, until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion His mighty scepter, more kingly language. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, that means they will be spotless. They will be, they will be holy. They will be pure. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are priests forever after the order of Melchizedek. This promise came hundreds of years after the promise for prophet. Kingly illusions. Promises of a priest. But most of the expectations for the anointed one come from the kingly office. These start in the covenant with David. 2 Samuel 7. Right after David dances around uh, in his less than formal attire, and right before he is, um, and uh, right into being in covenant with God, this is the promise. Interesting, you look at all these. The, the, the promise is for the people, but always looking forward. With the prophet, a better one's coming. With the priest, a better one's coming. Look at his prophet, or his, God's promise to the king. 2 Samuel 7, picking up in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, must be from the tribe of Judah, must be uh, from the line of David, and I will establish his kingdom. We see it partial in Solomon. He shall build a house for my name. Solomon built a house. Jesus builds a better one. We saw that in Hebrews 3. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Still speaking about one to come. I will be him to, a, to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Sound familiar? When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Interesting. Psalm 89, when David writes on this later, he says, when his sons commit iniquity. He shall be their representative. Their sin will be on him. When they sin, he will be beaten with the stripes of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it 
from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever through the one who is to come, the promised one. What were they expecting? Well, these should be in the back of your mind if you're a good Jew. But I want to share something with you. Uh, There's an extra biblical source, the Psalms of Solomon. Don't try to turn there. It's not in your Bibles. It is not biblical, but it is historical. Uh, And it's found in the pseudepigrapha. It is not a Harry Potter spell. That just means false author. So it's called the Psalms of Solomon, but it was written 100 years 100 years before Christ, 100 years B.C. So these are, these are psalms sung by, by, by Jews. They are not canonical. We don't hold them as Scripture, but they're helpful because they, we're, they're found in history. They are attributed to people 100 years before Jesus. The last two psalms of, of Solomon, 17 and 18, are the psalms of the Christ, of the Anointed One. I want to read a, a larger chunk here because I think this is helpful. I'm going to move through it quickly. But just see if this symbolism and the things that they were looking forward to make sense to you. Picking up in verse 23. See, O Lord, and raise up their king for them, a son of David, for the proper time that you see God to rule over Israel your servant, and undergird him him with strength to shatter unrighteous rulers. Cleanse Jerusalem from the nations that trample it in destruction, to expel sinners from the inheritance in wisdom, in righteousness, to rub out the arrogance of, of the sinner like a potter's vessel, to crush all their support with an iron rod, to destroy lawless nations by the word of his mouth, mm. for Gentiles to flee from his face at his threat, and to reprove sinners by the word of their heart. Their own hearts will convict them. All right, I've got to stop doing commentary all the way, or we'll never finish. Um, and he will gather a holy people whom he will lead in righteousness, and he will judge the tribes of the people sanctified by the Lord its God. This is a hundred years before Jesus. And he will no longer permit injustice to dwell among them, and no person who sees wickedness will dwell with them. For he will know them, because of all them are sons of God, and he will divide uh, them among their tribes upon the earth. And no longer will an expatriate or foreigner dwell among them. He will judge peoples and nations by the wisdom of his righteousness." You just got to sing for a minute and let that sink in before you go on to the next verse. And he will have peoples of nations to serve him under his yoke. And he will glorify the Lord notably over all the earth. He will cleanse Jerusalem with sanctification. As also from the beginning for nations to come from the edge of the earth to see his glory. Bringing his gifts its utter weakened sons. And to see the glory of the Lord that God glorified. And he is a righteous king over them taught by God. And there is no injustice in his days among them because they are, they are all holy. They all are holy. And their king is the anointed Lord. For he will not hope in horse and rider and bow or multiply gold nor silver to himself for battle. And he will not gather hopes by many for the day of war. The Lord himself is his king. The hope of the one who is mighty by the hope of God. And he will show mercy to all the nations before him in fear. For he will bring down the earth with the word of his mouth forever. He will bless the people of the Lord by wisdom with joy. And he will be clean from sin to rule over great people, to reprove the rulers and to remove sinners by the strength of his word. And he will not be weak in his days upon his God because God made him strong by the Holy Spirit and wise by the counsel of understanding with strength and righteousness. 
And the blessing of the Lord will be with him in strength. And his hope in the Lord will not be weak. And who will be strong against him? Strong in his works and mighty in fear of God. Shepherding the flock of the Lord in faithfulness and righteousness. And he will not permit any among them to be weak in their pasture. He will lead them all with equality. And there will be no arrogance among them for any among them to be oppressed. This is the propriety of the king of Israel that God knew to raise him up over the house of Israel to discipline it. His words have been purged in fire, more than first-rate gold. He will judge the tribes of sanctified people in the assemblies. His words are as words of holy ones in the midst of sanctified peoples. Blessed are those who live in those days to see the good things of Israel and the gathering of the tribes. May God do it. May God speak his mercy upon Israel. He will rescue us from the impurity of profane enemies. The Lord himself is our king forever and further. If that, that may not be biblical, but that is doctrinally sound. That is God glorifying, and I hope that person knew the Lord. It's hard not to. We don't know who, who wrote that, but was this what Peter was thinking? Was this the song that was sung in his house growing up? Was this what he heard in, in, in synagogues? There is more wisdom in what we just read than everything we've seen from the Pharisees and Sadducees and all the Gospels. A hundred years before Jesus. There are things that's incredible in this. This is the first time any human declares Jesus' identity. Up to this point, the confessions of Christ have only come from the spiritual realm. The Father at Jesus' baptism and the demons. They are the only ones who rightly say who Jesus is up to this point. This is the first time any human rightly speaks from his lips who Jesus is. What an amazing confession. And Mark gives us the, the shortest description of what Peter says. So I've resisted up to this point. I want to make sure I don't teach the longer one in Matthew. But I want us to turn there. Because it gives us context and it fills out this picture of who is the Christ. Matthew 16, 15 through 18. This is not on the screen because I want you to turn there. And I'm assuming if you're in Mark, you can find your way to Matthew. Matthew 16, pick up in verse 15. And he said to them, Jesus to the disciples, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied. Uh, oh, wait. I'm going to jump up a little further. should have started at 13. Now, when Jesus came into, the, came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Before we move on, I want you to see this. Who do people say I am? Who do people say the Son of Man is? This is also inextricably linked with the idea of Christ. Who do people say the Son of Man is? We must bring this picture together because up until this point, it has been three human offices, prophet, priest, and king. All these expectations are coming from the line of David, and they're all true. But there's something that the Son of Man describes that, that, that the Son of uh, David does not. So look at Daniel chapter 7. This one will be up on the screen. Jesus' favorite title for himself, most often from the lips of Jesus, what does he say? Daniel 7, verse 13, And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. 
And it came to the Ancient of Days. If you look a few verses before, the Ancient of Days is God Himself, God the Father. There came one like a son of man, and He came to the Ancient of Days, and He was presented before them. And to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Who do people say that I am? Jesus is drawing not only on the human illusions, but the divine as well. No one can stand before God but God. No one is given glory but God. No one is given dominion but God. And Jesus is making sure to make this connection, and Matthew kind of fulfills that, that picture for us. But I want to continue in Matthew 16. But who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus knew, or excuse me, Peter knew what that meant. You are the Christ. There's only one. You're the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This is not temporally discerned. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, the confession of who I am, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What is the strength of the church? Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. No earthly power or pope, or principality. Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. And this is a decisive step. From saying, yeah, I'm in the boat with Jesus, to you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Paul tells us something in Romans 10 about what happens in our hearts. If there is truly transformation in our hearts, it cannot help but come out our mouths. Romans 10, 8-10. through 10. I bring this up often because this is important. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. How are we saved? confessing Jesus Christ that God raised from the dead because we believe it in our hearts. There is no other way to be saved. No other salvation. This is proof of spiritual sight. This is proof of regeneration of a new person who lives and sees. I can't help it. Who do you say I am? He is Jesus Christ, the Son of living God. He is resurrected and reigning at the right hand of the majesty on high. How do you know if someone's a Christian? What do they confess with their mouth? Do you see it on their heart? Who is Jesus? What is our confession? The confession of the church is very important. We spent time over the last couple months talking about confessions, the things that the churches agree with one another on. We can stand on orthodox truth. But the core of everything is who is Jesus? And your answer needs to include two things. His person and His work. Who He is and what He's done. If He is not the anointed of God, the Christ, the Son of David, fully man, He is not the Jesus of the Bible. If He is not the Son of Man, 
The one at the right hand of the Father who is given glory and dominion. He is not the Jesus of the Bible. If he is not fully God, fully man, son of God, son of man, it is not the Jesus of the Bible. But also what he's done. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a moral man. He is creator. He is redeemer. He is savior. He is prophet, priest, king, mediator, judge, restorer. Amen. Unless he is all these things and more and he is a lesser Christ, and he is not the Christ. The, church, the church's conviction is always going to be contrasted with that of the people. The people may see a little bit. They may, they may see trees walking. But if they don't see him clearly, they don't see him at all. Our conviction to be contrasted with the people. We're rarely going to be in agreement with the message masses people can be close oh john the baptist Elijah, one of the prophets you're close but no cigar you always want the cigar um he must be the christ the final prophet the final priest the final king this is hard for people pleasers because we want to be content with talking about god and things that are that, that are safe You want to talk about Jesus? Talk about the judge who's going to return to judge sinners. Wait, sin? Hell? Death? Well, you're insensitive. You're intolerant. You're a bigot. You're in good company. Join the club. Because if you talk about Jesus, people will hate you. They will rage against you as they were destined to do as we saw in Psalm 2. But if you will not confess and proclaim that Jesus of the scriptures, you're going to hear his words next week. I just want to fast forward to verse 38, the very end of chapter 8. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. If you're ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you. And don't just think this, this friendly Jesus the Son of Man, who stands in the glory and the majesty on high, who is coming back to judge the nations, I will be ashamed of you. You don't want to be on the other end of His sword. Are you ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you ashamed of Jesus? Do you stumble with an answer when people ask you? Who do you say that He is? There is no more important question than any, that anyone has to answer. And trust me, a non-answer is an answer. Many of you fence-sitters don't like to take a stand. A non-answer in this one is an answer. You will confess Him in this life or the next one way or another. Either welcoming, being welcomed into His kingdom or falling upon His sword. So we finish this section with one of the last instances of Jesus telling them not to tell anyone this charge for secrecy. He's avoiding this revolutionary idea. It's interesting, Acts 1.6. They're still thinking, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? There is still a desire for this time, this place, to have all of our problems solved. 
And many of us still have that same desire. Lord, now will you restore the United States to its glory days. Now will you make everything complete in this life. The most important question you ever answer is who is Jesus Christ? And Peter, God love him. Even though he begins to see and he makes this amazing declaration, next week he's going to stick his foot in his mouth again. And Jesus is going to rebuke him and call him Satan. Many of our Christian lives are like this. Jesus, you are Lord, and the next, next minute you're being rebuked and being called Satan because you are so heretical. Thankfully, the Lord is deliberate and patient with us as he is with them. My prayer this morning is he grants us eyes to see him rightly. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We praise you. The God of all glory and might. Perfect three in one. The Ancient of Days, the Son of Man, and the Advocate. How awesome you are. Thank you for giving sight to your people that we may see you in just a glimmer. Lord, but we long to see your face unhindered, unveiled. Lord, may we worship you on earth as we will be worshiping with you in your kingdom. May we be bold. May we not be ashamed of you. May your name ever be on our lips. May we know you rightly. And Lord, if anyone in here is masquerading as a Christian that does not know Jesus, that is confessing some lesser Christ or is speaking vain words that their heart does not know, Lord, I ask that you touch them like you touched the blind man. You spit not only on their eyes, but their heart. That they might confess you because it flows out of a heart that loves you and knows you. This is my prayer for your church. My prayer for our people, that you may be glorified in our confession. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.